Hello and welcome. This is the Age Stage on RPPFM, a program that looks at the issues and matters affecting older Australians, all made possible by our very good sponsors, Aftercare Australasia, and our new sponsorship partners, Australian Unity. I'm Brenda Telfer. A very warm welcome. Well, usually at this time we introduce Paula Dunn, but she's not feeling particularly well today. So as uh, she remains horizontal, we wish her all the best and a speedy recovery. Get better soon, Paula. So let's uh, push on then. On the program today, Cataracts, a new report reveals that thousands of Australians are in the dark about the condition and there are not only serious vision issues but mental health implications as well. And we'll also hear from someone who reluctantly went through the cataract procedure but then couldn't believe the difference that it made to his life. And now he is a big advocate of that cataract intervention. Plus, we'll also speak to Bill Metcalf, who took on the insurance industry and Bill won. Bill has an amazing story to tell in sense when he turned 70 that his travel insurance doubled. He really cracked it and he did something about it. It took him two and a half years but he did get the win in the end. Bill Metcalf, a little bit later on in today's Age Stage, telling us all about how he's pushing back against ageism. But first, our regular visitor, and always a very warm welcome to Warren Haynes from Aftercare Australasia. Welcome, Warren. Good to have you back here. G'day, Brendan. Lovely to be here again. Yes, I'm solo today. Paula, not feeling particularly well, so unfortunately it is just little old moi today. We wish you a very speedy recovery, Paula. Um, Warren, been another big week. Uh, we mentioned last week in the program, but we haven't been able to deliver the minister. But nevertheless, we have been assessing and looking at the Aged Care Royal Commission. There have been developments, and you kindly have decided to put your hand up and just give us a little bit of more insight into that uh, in terms of what and, and what we can expect from here. Yeah, sure, Brendan. And and look, uh, I think it, it's probably worth just commenting. I, I, I may even sort of take on a bit of a role of being a uh, a, a, a virtual uh, aged care royal commission correspondent. Well, I, I think, think you, so. You are now dubbed. You've, you're you're <laughs> you're aged care royal commission reporter, Warren. You've got yourself a job. I think it's I think it's vital actually because this thing is absolutely monstrous particularly for this program, particularly for the people that enjoy listening to this mm. program, it is very, very important mm. that we keep a handle on it. And as I said, we will endeavour to get the Minister onto the program when we can, when he's got a little bit of time. But in the meantime, yeah. if you can keep a bit of an eye on this thing, uh, it's mm. very, very interesting. Now, the website is there. Terms and yes. conditions are up. What's going on? Yes. Okay. So, first of all, I'll just clarify. The reason I thought I might sort of have to put my hand up is one of the things that struck me as being very interesting is... Uh, this is all driven by sort of, uh, you know, technology, which is the way things are going. But it, it strikes me that it's not terribly accessible for a lot of people who may be receiving aged care services. Um, you can't call the Aged Care Royal Commission. There is no phone number listed for it. The only way that you can contact them is by email, and the only way that you can receive updates is by email. So uh, obviously their assumption, quite reasonably, is that the vast majority of people these days do have access to that level of technology. But again, it's an assumption, Warren, yes. particularly about a demographic that, yes, they're getting it, and yes, they're getting integrated into that technology, but, mm. you know, yes. there's, it's a huge assumption, isn't it? it? It's definitely going to put some people at a disadvantage. So so one of the things we were, we were just discussing um, uh, off-air was uh, I think we will keep track, I will keep track of when the hearings are announced, uh, so that 
people can be aware of that and if they're able to attend the hearings, um, you know, that, that will at least give them sufficient notice to get themselves organised. They tend to be, um, you know, in fairly central locations. It's usually not a process where they sort of tour around a wide range of um, geographic locations, so it's most likely to be in Melbourne based on previous Royal Commissions. Um, but uh, but the, other, the other reason that's so important is the, the process of making submissions uh, to the Royal Commission is exactly the same. It's all done electronically. So if you don't have the means to, you know, type up a, a Word document and, and save it as an attachment on an email and send it in, your voice may not be heard, unfortunately. So, so if I'm feeling particularly passionate about a particular issue, and I live down here, say, on the Mornington Peninsula or in the Greater Melbourne area, how do I make my, my, my feelings and my thoughts known on this particular area? I have to write the email? Can I just front up when they, when they have the hearings, or do I have to hit some sort of a list? What do I do? Uh, usually they have open hearings. Um, again, we'll have to wait and see. Those details haven't been announced. If they're open hearings, pretty much anyone can turn up and at least be part of the uh, audience that observes the hearings. To be um, selected to speak, you, there is a process usually of applying um, to to make a submission, um, so so that yeah, what they could do though, what people could do is if they really felt blocked out by that, obviously ask family, ask friends if someone can can help can help them sort of uh, type something up. It doesn't need to be um, you know a really polished document. I think it's really important that the Royal Commission, as we've seen with the Banking Royal Commission, that it hears from from a range of voices, including the people who don't usually get heard very well. Okay, so you've done some due diligence already and already there seem to be a series of categories that they seem to identify that mm. need some attention and obviously they're looking for some submissions in certain areas. Yes. What are they that you can okay. see? Okay, so they're, they're the, the, the terms and there's seven broad terms of reference um, for the Commission. So the first one, you know, based on, again, going back to the Four Corners sort of expose, uh, is really looking at uh, the extent of substandard care that's across not just... Um, nursing homes or residential aged care, but also in-home care as well. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that they're not going to find uh, very much evidence of that in the home care uh, area for the reasons that we've previously outlined. Um, they're also looking at mistreatment and abuse um, and, and any actions that need to be taken to address those issues. So that's probably, you know, that's number one uh, on the list. They're looking more broadly also at um, how to best deliver services specifically to people who are um, experiencing dementia, uh, and that's because people who experience dementia have a much higher rate of ending up in nursing homes because it just gets to a point where it becomes um, you know, too risky perhaps or too um, overwhelming for them and family to provide that support. And who will be representing those people suffering dementia? Well, I would think that uh, Alzheimer's Australia uh, would be taking the lead on that. But again, it's really important that they hear those voices of family members who often bear the brunt of that care, um, as well as you know professional bodies. I think that that can't be emphasised enough how important it is. Another area would be at-home care. Yes, yes. Um, they are looking at, which is great, well, I'm, I'm, I think this is quite a positive, so they're looking at what they're calling the future challenges, and one of those specifically is this very strong desire that people have to remain at home. And, uh, Brendan, you know, as, as we've 
uh, touched on briefly previously, uh, and I, unfortunately I don't have the figures in front of me right now, perhaps I'll bring them to another session, um, but the proportion of funding, so there's a huge amount of money that gets spent in this area, but the proportion of funding that goes to building more nursing homes, even when there's evidence that people don't really want them other than as a last resort, and there's pretty clear evidence now that often the care you get is you know, pretty hit and miss, um, that's where most of the funding goes. Well, I'm sure a lot of care providers would probably take exception to that last <laughs> comment, Mr Haynes, but nevertheless, um, we get the drift, especially given the documentary evidence that we saw on the Four Corners. Uh, and, and for instance, we've had a couple of people in here doing the tour of our studios, mm. and they love um, their, their care and, and their village lifestyle and their, their sort of resort lifestyle they describe it as. Yeah, I'm not talking about, I need to be clear here, I'm not talking about retirement homes. Retirement homes fit into an entirely different uh, category. Again, people living in a retirement village are still entitled to get a home care package on top of that to ensure that they can continue living there. And, and look, again, you're quite right. There are lots of good providers out there. Unfortunately, this is the focus has been on the hopefully the handful that are not doing the right thing. But the point I'm making is still nonetheless, it's tremendously expensive to provide support for somebody in a nursing home versus providing support for someone at home and staying at home is what most people want. That's been something that's been well researched now for a very long time. And indeed, and that brings maybe the next issue along as well, which I think is another subcategory, which is sustainability. How are we going to sustain all yeah. this and who's going to cough up the bucks? This mm. is big money mm. and we're getting older. A lot of us are getting old very quickly, mm. demographically. So there's a, there's a number of things that are going on in that space as well. And again, this is another term of reference for the, for the Royal Commission. Um, they're going to look at innovation and obviously innovation well, I sound like a jaded old cynic here, but you know, innovation sometimes can be a, a bit of a code word for cutting costs. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'd like to think that that's not going to be the focus. No, but last week we had the very innovative uh, application of new technology in this particular area with Pippa the robot yes. introduced to us in London last week by the University of Middlesex, in which Pippa and her ilk in the next generation of robot might be able to fulfill some sort of a role in this particular area. The Japanese have been big into this for a long time. It looks like the Brits and the Europeans are trying to catch up as well. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there have been some major breakthroughs in that space. They've definitely finally got this sort of artificial intelligence down to a point where um, it's, it's sufficiently capable to interact with someone in quite a lifelike way and sort of pursue their interests and be almost a companion for someone or, you know, somewhere between a companion and a pet and some entertainment even. In, um, indeed, but also uh, in terms of being able to provide um, life services or emergency services as well. I mean, the, the intelligence now is that they know that if the person is not vertical in front of them, they can basically set off a series of alarms, geolocate yes. that particular person, send off signals anywhere. That technology is now available from your local Telstra store, for instance, right now. Yes, yes, it's quite remarkable. I think with the rollout of NBN, it's going to, it's really open the door to a whole lot of things that have been 
very much promising and somewhere, you know, somewhere on the horizon, but there hasn't been the bandwidth to support them. There's even, for instance, been um, various applications where um, family members, for instance, can um, set up sort of a process of uh, monitoring so that they can be um, at work or at home doing their normal thing and literally on their phone if they, um, you know, want to just see how mum's doing, they can not only give her a call but they can, uh, you know, see where she is in the in the in the home and make sure that she's okay and just get that little bit of extra feedback there's monitoring devices that can go on doors now there are some privacy issues around this as well in terms of who has access to it um, but there are monitors that can be put on doors so that people can tell from a remote distance whether someone simply got up and gone through the bedroom door gone through the bathroom door gone through the gone through the kitchen door which kind of is an indicator without intruding too much um, that someone's up and about and things are going well. Um, so there, there's, there's all sorts of things there that can be built into people's homes. And of course, finally, this environmental control devices are coming through where uh, someone who's physically impaired can just simply ask the device to turn the lights on, make them brighter, make them dimmer, put the heater on, turn the cooling on. Make it colder, make it make it warmer. So those things are just starting to flow through, and I think as Paula mentioned as well, um, you know, there's the latest version of the Apple Watch. Now, one of the issues that's been around for a long time with monitoring services is you have to carry this fairly ugly, intrusive pendant dangling around on your neck. Now they work very well. I mean, they've got a call button on them that will call emergency services, but. I can't tell you how many times, Brendan, I've been out to see a person and they go, oh, yes, I left it hanging on this, on the, you know, on the, my bed, bedroom lamp and I keep forgetting to put it on or I take it off to go in the shower because it's not fully waterproof and then I forget where I've put it. And, and so it's not there when they need it. Well, with the latest Apple Watch, um, it's on your wrist. It stays on your wrist the whole time because it's waterproof uh, and it actually detects if you have a fall and makes a call to a number that you've programmed in, it might be neighbour or family, um, to alert to them that you might need some assistance. That's yeah, fantastic. So, Maybe it's time to get Chris from Telstra down here to give us one of his technology <laughs> updates. It sound, I think hmm. it's probably There's very timely. a lot timely. happening in that space. Indeed there is. So um, you're going to be our acting roving reporter taking a look at this Royal Commission, which is fantastic, uh, Mr Haynes. You've dobbed yourself well and truly <laughs> there. Um, Timeline then. What, when can we expect these hearings? What are, what are we looking at? Uh, I mean, look, yeah. I mean, uh, I think I sort of outlined when we've got the interim report, which is next year, mm. and and the final report. I think's not from memory. It's not even from till the year after that. Correct. Um, they haven't actually announced um, when they're so they're not open for submissions yet. There's just a you know and watch this space on the on the website at the moment, and the same with the hearings. So we the short answer is we don't know yet. Um, we'll just have to keep a watching eye on it. But you will keep a watching eye for it, yes. eh? Yes. Well, Warren, thank you very much indeed for that. We appreciate uh, you coming in. And, um, of course, Aftercare Australasia, very generous with your support of the aid stage, making it possible for us to uh, meet as we do uh, like this every week. So thank you. Mm, our pleasure, Brendan. Warren, well, thank you very much indeed. And we will catch up with you next week. And please do keep an eye on that uh, Royal Commission for us, as you have promised. Very, very important. A reminder that you tuned up to our double PFM and this is the age stage. When we come back, we're going to be speaking to ophthalmologist Dr. Georgia Cleary on a new report that says cataracts are now affecting up to 700,000 Australians 
and that the condition is taking a toll on our mental health. All that in just a moment. So this is Arndable PFM. You're listening to The Age Stage. No Paula done today. Brendan Telfer in the studio with you as Paula enjoys a little bit of a break. A new report finds that cataracts are taking a severe toll on our mental health. Many Australians unsure about how to spot the symptoms, and there are some 700,000 of us affected by the cataract condition. To find out more on the line, let's join ophthalmologist and surgeon, Dr. Georgia Cleary. Georgia, welcome. Thanks for joining us on the age stage. Morning, Brendan. Thank you for having me. Well, this is rather frightening. I mean, not only from the point of view of our eyesight, but also the, the mental health implications of cataracts as well. What's going on? With cataracts, people will have a gradual decline in their eyesight. And so with that, we'll see for some people uh, a, a decline in their ability to do everyday tasks. That might include reading, it might include driving, and so that could even mean a loss of independence. Indeed. And so the thing is that many people are unaware of the symptoms and what they should be doing. I mean, 700,000 Australians affected by cataracts. That's a huge number. Yeah, absolutely. It's an enormous number. Um, we know that the main factor that influences the development of cataracts is age. So with our ageing populations, of course, those numbers will expand over time. Um, but cataracts typically will develop gradually, so slowly over time, some people will develop cataracts and be unaware of them because they will just accept their day-to-day vision as perhaps being normal for them. So perhaps you could just give us a, a simple definition of cataracts. What is it? It's an opaqueness of the eye, is it? Well, it's an opaqueness of the internal natural lens inside the eye. So there are two main focusing parts to the eye. We've got the clear window at the front of the eye, the cornea, and then we've got an internal lens in the eye. It's about the same shape and size as a Smarty, and that gradually becomes cloudy over time. So once the cataract starts to develop, people might notice a general blur, they might notice difficulty with reading or driving, um, and another symptom people can get is trouble with bright lights. So, for example, driving the car with the setting sun and bright headlights, they might be the early symptoms of cataract. So well. what, what exactly is causing the cataract in the first place? Is it some sort of oxidisation or something, some exposure to bright light which is causing nerve damage in the, and also this opaqueness? How, how is it forming? Well, the lens which becomes a cataract as it becomes cloudy is a really interesting structure. It's actually made up of many little cells and the structure of that gives the natural lens its transparency. So with ageing, we see a change in the protein structure within these cells. Uh, there is a, some degree of clumping together of the proteins, and there's this gradual change from the lens being transparent to being cloudy. Um, some people come to us and they think that a cataract might be a new layer or a growth inside the eye, but that's actually not the case, just a, a clouding of the natural lens there. So we were mentioning that 700,000 Australians are affected and as you were mentioning with the ageing population that number is likely to increase in coming years as well. 65% of us don't know that we have the symptoms or that we should be perhaps talking to people like yourself, Georgia, ophthalmologists, about what to do and, and what sort of treatments. Well, the most simple starting point, point for people if they're concerned about their eyes um, would be to see their optometrist. 
So optometrists are eye health professionals who are very highly trained and they can definitely pick up the signs of cataract. Um, another thing to think about, which is really important, is that there are other eye conditions that can be sight-threatening. Um, so the benefit of seeing an optometrist to get your eyes checked is that they'll be able to look out not only for cataract, but for other important eye conditions, things like macular degeneration and also glaucoma. Um, if you don't have easy access to an optometrist, and perhaps this is more relevant for more um, rural and regional people, um, a GP would also be a good starting point. The other interesting stat is that people seem to be procrastinating about going down and, and getting these types of uh, treatments authorised or at least diagnosed as well. Yeah, that's a really interesting part of the equation. Um, I certainly know from my own practice that some of my patients are a little bit scared about having their eyes looked at because they worry about what the treatment might entail. Um, one gentleman I looked after, he had really got to the point where he was virtually um, unable to drive legally because of his cataract, but he felt scared about having it seen to. And once he'd had his treatment and had his surgery done, he actually felt that things went really well and he perhaps felt a little bit silly for putting things off. But I just think that fear of the unknown can sometimes cause people to procrastinate and defer getting a checkup. Georgie, you would have given him his life back. I mean, all of a sudden he can see and drive comfortably again. My goodness, I mean, uh, what a revelation it must have been for him after the, uh, the procedure. It's a really great job that we have as ophthalmologists. Um, when we have happy patients who do well after their cataract surgery, I had another lady this morning who has had both eyes done and she did suffer from those problems we talked about earlier, you know, feeling a bit down, feeling she couldn't see well, losing her confidence. And some people say they, they really feel like they've got their life and their independence back when they can see well again. Well, it so must it, be. It yeah, must, it must be so, really happy. It must be so heartening for you. It's fantastic. Yeah. Now, also, you're probably going to assure us that really the procedure is not that difficult and really not that onerous. It's uncomfortable, and the thought of it, I suppose, is psychologically confronting, but really in terms of the operation itself, it ain't that bad. That's absolutely right. We're very lucky. We work with anaesthetists who um, are able to help give our patients the medications to help them feel a little bit calm and relaxed before surgery. And cataract surgery is painless because we're able to numb the eye and the eye area really effectively. So you don't feel any discomfort there. And it's around about a 15 to 20 minute operation. You don't need to stay overnight. So, you know, generally people shouldn't be anxious about the thought of a cataract operation. They uh, really tend to go very well. And my eyesight in the eyes, usually if you're doing two, it would be one followed by the other. The first eye that you operate on is up and functional within, what, hours after the procedure? Depending on the type of anaesthetic we use, many patients can notice an improvement, yes, within hours of surgery. There's usually uh, some healing time required, though, so the best eyesight is usually going to take... Um, several weeks before any swelling from the surgery settles down. But generally, the improvement is noticed very quickly. So while you're at it, Georgie, can you also correct uh, my, my poor vision? Can you adjust the lens in my eyes so that I don't need uh, glasses going forward? Yeah, that indeed is another really great thing about cataract surgery. When we take out that natural lens, we replace it with a new plastic lens implant. And so with that new lens implant, we do 
do have that opportunity to correct focus. So some people who've worn really thick glasses their whole life do have the opportunity to be free of glasses after their surgery. Um, that isn't the case for every single patient. So we do have to um, you know, work with every individual to find out what the best solution for them is. But it's a really added, added bonus that if you get cataracts, we can end up giving you better vision than you might have had prior to your cataracts even developing. So then age-related eye illnesses, including, of course, cataracts, but also we mentioned glaucoma uh, briefly as well, another mm -hmm. important one to keep an eye on. This is basically pressure within the eyeball, I believe, as we age. Yeah, so glaucoma, a very separate condition, usually linked with high eye pressure, and over time the pressure can damage the nerve at the back of the eye. So, again, the solution is get down, see an optometrist, get some professionals onto it and get it corrected as quickly as possible because ultimately it too could lead, lead to blindness. Absolutely. So it really highlights the importance of a regular eye test. Um, generally, every two years is absolutely fine. And if anything's picked up, that can be done more frequently. So the bottom line is then, uh, Georgia, basically get down, see some professionals, get some good advice and get cracking. The sooner that you do it, the better you're going to feel and also um, restorative eyesight. Absolutely. Fantastic. And Georgia, if we needed to come and see you and get a second opinion, where would we find you? Where are you practicing? I work at Bayside Eye Specialists in Brighton East. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We truly appreciate you joining us on the age stage. I think the message is... Uh, a very clear one and I think a pretty fundamental one as well and one that uh, we all must understand as we get a little bit older. Yep, thank Good. you very much. Ophthalmologist and eye surgeon Dr Georgia Cleary there on the A stage on RPPFM, a program of course that looks at issues and concerns affecting older Australians. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back we meet John who says he was absolutely scared stiff about the prospect of eye surgery but he did eventually have the cataracts done and now says everyone, but everyone must do it. Back in just a moment. This is RPPFM broadcasting out of our wonderful Bendigo Bank Studios down here in Wilson's Road in Monington. Great to have your company. This is The Age Stage, a program which is designed, of course, especially for older Australians, looks at issues and matters affecting us older Australians as well. Well, just before the break, we were speaking to ophthalmologist Dr. Georgia Cleary about cataracts. Now time to introduce you to John. John is a small business owner and basically has gone through the whole cataract operation. And John, you were a little reluctant at first, but you and your wife particularly probably pushed you, realising that your eyesight was deteriorating. Yes, I was uh, very reluctant at first. Um, I guess I am one of those people who has a fear of doctors and particularly a fear of uh, anything approximating an operation. My mother, some years ago, had been through a cataract operation. I unfortunately inherited that fear from her, but she managed it. Um, and it wasn't until I virtually got to the point where my vision had deteriorated, not to nothing, but where it became... Uh, it, it, I had a very poor quality of life. 
Well, and that would have had huge impact on you, not only sort of personally and probably as we've heard uh, speaking with um, Dr. Cleary about um, the mental health aspects about all that as well, but also your business. I mean, you're in IT. You, you need to see stuff. And if you're not seeing it properly, even driving yourself to appointments and locations, it was going to have big, having a big impact, surely. It had a major impact. Um, I mean, I suffer that uh, problem that probably most of us over the age of 50 suffer, where um, we've become a bit long-sighted, we're reading glasses, and, I mean, it was getting to the point where I could barely read, um, I could barely um, function in my business. In terms of driving, I'd always, uh, I'd always been the driver, and all of a sudden my wife was the driver. Um, and I, it got to the point where one morning I was driving my uh, teenage children to school and I said, it's foggy. And they just looked at me and said, Dad, no, it isn't. It's fine. <laughs> um, I was borderline. I probably shouldn't have been driving. But you decided to suck in a few deep breaths, you took yourself along, and you decided to go through the procedure. Your heart rate must have been pounding. You must have been very, very fearful. I was extremely fearful, but more fearful of the pressure from my uh, very supportive wife, who basically said, enough is enough, and she, she was correct, and she'd been saying it long enough. I had that said to me by other family members, particularly my uh, my mother and mother-in-law, and uh, I was, I won't say dragged, but I went along to Dr Cleary's uh, offices, and uh, I was told there that I was borderline of being able to drive, in other words, that a tiny bit worse than they would have basically revoked my licence or seen that it was revoked. Um, I mean, Dr Cleary was wonderful. That's part of it. You need someone that you feel comfortable with that can reassure you, etc., etc. Um, and she basically said to me, it's no big deal. And in the end, it really wasn't. So you underwent the procedure. You uh, came out the other side it must have been a revelation. It must have been a moment of epiphany. All of a sudden, the scales have fallen off your eyes and you're seeing again. Uh, in my left eye, I, and as embarrassing as this is, I was let it go for nearly three years. And it got to the point where I basically had light, dark vision and nothing else. Um, I needed both eyes done. My right eye was a lot less affected than my left. It uh, it turned out that I quite liked being put under, um, and you're only completely under for around a minute. The rest of it is sort of semi-conscious but extremely relaxing. Um, got home after maybe two or three hours, or a couple of hours after the operation, and... I'm not one of these blokes that cries, not because I think blokes shouldn't cry, but I shed a tear. It was an utterly amazing experience. And now look at you, John. You've realised and got your life back. Well, yeah, exactly. Although I look at myself and I think sometimes maybe I was better off not being able to see. But no, you're absolutely right. It is 
the change is enormous. And my best advice to anyone who's starting to get any symptoms, bite the bullet, it's really no big deal. Find someone that you are comfortable with and proceed with it, and it will definitely change your life. When did you have the, when did you have this procedure, John? I had the first one around this time last year, and I think the next one in December last year. And now you have fully restored eyesight. I have fully restored eyesight. I, in fact, my long vision is just above normal. I'm back to where I was, you know, seven, eight years ago. Fantastic. No, no problem at all. Absolutely brilliant. And, of course, you are a very strong advocate for us all to do something about this and go and have that conversation. Do it. Have the conversation. Don't let it get to the point that I let it get to. Do it as early as possible. And even if you have let it get to that point, do it. It will change your life. Absolutely change your life. John, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today on The Age Stage. The Age Stage, of course, is brought to you each week by RPPFM in association with Aftercare Australasia and our new sponsors, Australian Unity. When we come back, Bill Metcalf, who took on the insurance industry and he won. This is The Age Stage, brought to you by RPPFM and also our very kind sponsors, Aftercare Australasia and our new friends at Australian Unity. When Bill Metcalf turned 70, he got a very rude shock. Fit, active, healthy, he loved travelling, and he was always sure to have the very necessary travel insurance. But when he turned the big 7-0, he got an unwelcome birthday present from his insurance company. His travel premiums had miraculously and somewhat alarmingly doubled overnight. It was a birthday present that Bill didn't want, and he certainly didn't enjoy it. So he set out to do something about it. Two and a half years later, he got a result. Bill Metcalf is on the line. Bill, welcome. No problem. Lovely talking to you. Bill, tell us about your case and the discrimination that really irked you to the point where you did take on an entire industry, and as we say, you won the battle. Well, um... It came when I turned 70, and suddenly I found overnight my travel insurance costs uh, doubled. And I thought, that's peculiar. So I uh, checked with the Anti-Discrimination Act and found that, indeed, insurance companies can discriminate on the basis of age, provided it's based on sound actuarial and statistical data. Now, I'm an academic, a researcher, so I thought, well, that's fair enough. I want to look at the data and how they've analyzed it. And to cut a long story short, uh, I went through the Anti-Discrimination Commission, who gave an order that for them to provide the data. They refused. Then it went through the Civil and Administrative Tribunal, uh, who, who also supported me and said, well, they need to provide the data, which they didn't. They refused. Eventually, they provided some very, very weak data that we, we'd fail a first-year student on because it simply did not show the relationship that they were talking about. Um, so in the end, again, to cut a long story short, after they stuffed around for two and a half years, they did everything to try and embarrass me, to humiliate me, to waste my time, the whole thing. Uh, the company, by the way, was Cerberus SureSave. Uh, they eventually, we won. They had to admit that they discriminated against me on the basis of age. Um, 
and they agreed that they would examine their policies and procedures, etc., um, and try to follow the law. Now, of course, they should have been following the law all the time, but basically they weren't. Um, they also paid uh, expenses for my barrister and my statistical expert to, to do it. So we've set a precedent, and other people across Australia, although age discrimination legislation is a state matter, in fact, every state has the same legislation, exactly. So the precedent that we set in, in, in Queensland could be applied in Victoria, for example, uh, where they did finally admit that they've discriminated. So you are saying that this now has federal application, or is it state-by-state state bill? Well, state-by-state. State. Again, uh, if you had a case in, in uh, Victoria, uh, you could refer to the decision in Queensland, which would be Metcalf versus Cerberus slash SureSave would get it. It's also on the um, Every Age Counts website. Um, one of the stories there about the victory talks about it. You'd be able to, to find that, and use that to help support your case, that at least one insurance company finally was forced to admit that they discriminate without sound basis uh, of, of health kind of thing. It's extraordinary that really, you know, we can point the finger and say that their defense uh, was sort of slightly contrived. They were trying to uh, upset uh, your campaign against them, and really that uh, speaks volumes about uh, the type of industry that you're up against and the type of campaign that they were mounting. Quite nasty business. I mean, with uh, offending me, talking down to me, patronizing. I happen to be a, a semi-retired senior academic, and it didn't go down real well. They tried various ways to bribe me. Uh, the worst was when they offered me, or the best, it depends how you look at it, free travel insurance for life if I would basically just go away, and I refused that. Uh, they offered me various other bribes, again, just to cash bribes, just to go. Uh, and all the way through we didn't. I had a very committed barrister, an old friend, um, who's also about my age and who took it on pro bono, and, and then in the end we got some money for him. I had a statistical expert. But I'm, I'm not a statistician. I'm a good researcher, and I understand statistics, but I'm not. And, I, and we have one of Australia's best statisticians that, that stood by me and went through and kept demanding to get the data that would allow them to, to that, would, that would justify their discrimination. And... They never provide that simply because they don't have it. Um, now, it may be that there is data that could be found there, and we kept saying all the way through that we simply don't know. But the law is very clear. You must have sound data on which to base the age discrimination. But so this, if you don't have that, you're outside the law. But this, again, speaks really to the law here in Australia, and apparently, you know, our rights as older Australians are protected by law. Are they? Well, all... <coughs> Yes and no. The problem is age discrimination, while it's illegal, is not a criminal offense. So if, if somebody commits a criminal offense against you, that is, they hit you in the nose or something like that, the police take up this and carry it through on your behalf. In age discrimination, the same as with, with gender discrimination, there's no police. So it basically nothing happens until you take action. And there is a provision. Uh, every state in Australia has a civil and administrative tribunal that can follow this through. But the problem is it totally depends on you fighting against a major, well-funded international insurance uh, giant. And, of course, they, they wheel out their, their top barristers in, from Sydney, et cetera, et cetera, and try their very, very best to push you into submission. And that's why I think most people don't take on a case of age discrimination or gender discrimination, because you really have to have 
with respect, a lot of guts and a lot of persistence to follow it through. And they do everything they can to shut you up. So, I mean, you, we are protected by the law, except you have to take the law into your own hands and follow it through. There's no agency to take that on for you. Are things changing then, Bill? I mean, if you're fighting campaigns like this and winning cases like this, are there going to be more such cases? Is there more well, stuff coming? I, 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 would, I would hope so. I would hope so. But the, 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 the problem is this, Brendan. I mean, I'm very well educated. I have no problem uh, standing up and, and arguing my case. It's pretty hard to dominate me. And I had one hell of a job for two and a half years. It's really, really stressful. So I would say to anybody else wanting to take it on, indeed, it, it'll only change if other people do take it on. But it's not an easy thing. You need to make sure you've got the, the will, the commitment to follow it through. And also it's very, very helpful if you happen to have a few professionals who will support you, uh, such as a good barrister to support you. Because, again, they, they will play around with the law. They'll give you legal arguments that are just rubbish. And it's not until then I would go to my barrister and he'd point out the problem. And then, of course, he appeared in court with me in the final one where we, we won a at least partial victory. It wasn't as big a victory as perhaps we would have liked. But uh, So, I mean, I think people have to take it up, as they have to take up gender discrimination and racial discrimination. But there's no agency that takes this up on your behalf. We're getting, okay. o- we're getting older. There are more of us um, reaching your age very, very quickly, and uh, there's going to be countless thousands, even millions of us soon in the Australian society. Right. Bill, I mean, really, does there need to be some sort of an agency that will act on our behalf in cases like this to save the individual from having to go what you went through for two and a half years? Oh, look, I, I would uh, argue that very strongly. I think, yes, uh, just as for the environment, we have the environment, Environmental Defenders Office that will pick up relatively minor cases. The problem with age discrimination is it, it's never worthwhile for one individual, financially worthwhile for one individual. I mean, in my case, they only charged me about three or $400 more than they had the year before. So, you know, it's not worth me spending two and a half years of my life fighting over that. So it, it, they count on this, but it's... It's only a few hundred dollars, and you just say, oh, damn it, I'll just pay it, and not worth fighting it. Um, but I think we need an agency that will, will be proactive rather than reactive. And I think that, that would stop the whole thing, because once you have that, companies know they simply can't persist with this sort of discrimination. Well, At the moment, another company, in fact, the company I was dealing with, Cerberus SureSafe, have not changed their policies at all. And they won't, I'm sure, until somebody else challenges them. And, you know, it's a matter of trying to embarrass these companies and trying to get the law. The law is on, on, on our side, on my side. I mean, it supported me in this, but doesn't take any action to enforce it. Well, you're, you know, par- you're part of the Every Age Counts campaign, and you're, you're cited as one of the, 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 the wonderful, shining examples of uh, seven, <laughs> se- se- 70-year-olds getting in and taking on the fight and fighting the good fight. I mean, can, can you see then that this lobby group is going to be able to perform the function of getting some protection for those of us that are approaching 70 and are 70 and beyond? Uh, well, I, I, are you asking me, am I hopeful or am I realistic? I, well, I'm hopeful, yes. I'm are hopeful. you an optimist, Bill? I am indeed an optimist. I wouldn't have taken this, base on, this case on otherwise. But, um, but the problem is what you're doing is you're, you're fighting a massive, massive multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar operation. I mean, Cerberus SureSafe, for example, are part of the Global Nomads Network, which is international under Lloyds of London. So, I mean, there's an uh, almost unlimited amount of money will come in and is available to fight this battle. And the fact that they, they lost 
they, they partially lost. I mean, it wasn't as clear and concise a victory as I would ideally like. And it's too long to go into now the details of that. But we still won a victory. Uh, was almost um, in, in spite of them. I mean, they so ballsed it up. And I think the next person taking on one like this might find a slightly harder uh, road to hold them than we had. But I'm hoping, certainly every age count is going in the right direction. And I think raising awareness. The other thing that's really, really important for seniors is to shop around very carefully for any, any form of insurance and make sure that you tell companies why you're not getting insurance from them because their discrimination is too too high. I mean, I, for example, travel now using another insurance company, and may I mention the name? Of course you can. Insure and Go. Uh, they For the same cover, they charge me about half what Cerberus and SureSafe were charging me, the same coverage. So uh, for somebody in my age group, 73, they're by far the best that I've found. Uh, but the point is you, you have to pass it along to the, co- the companies to whom you're, from whom you're not buying your insurance to point out why you're not buying it. Um, it. Older people tend to travel quite a lot, and we actually, the vast majority of us are very, very good risks. The data supports that very well. We don't get bashed up in barroom brawls or injure ourselves in bungee jumping and things like that. Um, there's possibly a small increase in risk as one ages, particularly as you get around the age 80, possibly. But again, the data is unclear about that. So we, we've never argued that that the risk may not go up as we age. We, we, which point, we simply don't know. So we, we, as good scholars, we can't argue that because we don't have the data either. But the point is very, very clear under the Act. It's up to the insurers. The onus is on the insurer to provide that data to support their discrimination. It's not up to you or I to provide the contrary data. Okay? And so that's the best we can do. And I, I think the... Um, the uh, uh, Every Age Counts project is fantastic. Whether it's powerful and well enough funded to follow this through, I don't know. I, I'm hopeful. Well, Bill Metcalf, three things. Firstly, thank you very much indeed for um, recommending Insure and Go. Okay. Secondly, thank you very much indeed for taking up this long two-and-a-half-year battle to you and your team. Congratulations from all, all of us here at the Age Stage. Thank you. And thirdly, thank you very much indeed for calling Australia home because without your energy, your dynamic and your <laughs> investment in this Australian piece of law, uh, perhaps it would have been Canada that would have been uh, advantaged rather, rather than us. <laughs> Thank you very much. Lovely talking to you. Bill Metcalf, thank you very much indeed. And a fantastic story there, pushing back against ageism. We're all about that here at RPPFM, the Age Stage, your local radio station broadcasting out of the Bendigo Bank Studio here in beautiful Mornington and uh, proudly sponsored, of course, the Age Stage by Aftercare Australasia and our dear friends at Australian Unity. Just about time for us to wrap it up for another week. Uh, we must thank our guest, Juan Haynes from Aftercare Australasia, ophthalmologist and eye surgeon, Dr. Georgia Cleary, John, our cataract procedure advocate, certainly now, and, of course, Bill Metcalf as well. Bill, thank you very much indeed for your time today. I'm Brendan Telfer. Next week on the program, our special guest will be Rachel Ong, Professor of Economics at Curtin University in Perth. Rachel Ong has just done some amazing study and some survey work, and, in fact, uh, she's come up with some pretty alarming news because more and more homeowners over the age of 65, it turns out, are reaching retirement in mortgage debt. And those figures have doubled in the past decade and they show no signs of changing. The housing markets are becoming more volatile and so are labour markets as well. 
Um, and so it does mean that more and more Australian homeowners are, are, are sitting close to the margins of homeownership. And what I mean by that is many of them are, are in insecure jobs where they're carrying high mortgage debt. And so it doesn't take very much to tip them over the edge. These are frightening figures with implications on where and how retirees might and where they can live in their future years. But it also has implications for the government since a lot of its future plans are predicated on the value of the family home. If there is no value or a diminished value in that home, what happens to government policy and what about our retirement? Find out next week when Dr. Rachel Ong is our special guest right here on RPPFM. I'm Brendan Tilfer. Thank you very much indeed for your company today. More Age Stage at the same time next week. See you then.